I think we should build a uh, permanent human settlement on one of the poles of the moon. And uh, it's you know, time to go back to the moon, but this time to stay. And there you would want to pre-position a whole bunch of equipment and supplies before the humans show up. And some of those things might need to be assembled uh, on the surface of the moon. And that's the kind of thing that could also be done by advanced robotics with uh, you know, machine learning systems on board. That's Jeff Bezos, the billionaire founder of Amazon and Blue Origin, telling kids about his vision for building up infrastructure on the moon with the aid of robots. A similar vision happens to be a big part of the plot for a new science fiction novel called Critical Mass, the second book in a series by Daniel Suarez. If Jeff Bezos or anyone else needs an instruction manual for building a moon base or a space station nearby, Critical Mass just might be a good book to start with. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fediplace, as we chat with Daniel Suarez about the real-world research that went into Critical Mass and the other books in his Delta V series. Asteroid mining, moon bases, and privately owned space stations have been the stuff of science fiction for decades. But now those ideas are transitioning from fiction to fact. NASA is spending millions of dollars to support the design of commercial space stations, and its Artemis program has the ultimate goal of creating sustainable transportation between the Earth and the moon. Even asteroid mining doesn't seem that far out anymore. Two companies, Planetary Resources and Deep Space Industries, tried to turn asteroid mining into a money-making venture, and although they both fell short of their goals, it's probably just a matter of time before somebody succeeds. Shooting for that success with support from space-loving billionaires is the main theme of Daniel Suarez's Delta V Trilogy. The second book in the trilogy, Critical Mass, has just come out, and it almost literally gets into the nuts and bolts of creating a huge space station at a gravitational balance point known as Earth-Moon L2 in the late 2030s. Daniel Suarez is a former systems consultant and software developer who has written techno-thrillers about a lot of scary subjects, including AI cyber criminals, black market embryo labs, and drone assassins. But the scenario he lays out in Critical Mass is one that he actually hopes will become a reality in the next 20 years. In fact, he argues, in the book and in the fiction science interview you're about to listen to, that spreading out into space will be a critical component of humanity's strategy to counter climate change on Earth. During our Zoom conversation, my co-host Dominica Fediplace and I discussed the real-world technologies that Suarez worked into his novel, from cryptocurrency to telepresence robots. But we started out with a basic question. What is Critical Mass about? Critical Mass is a story set in the late 2030s, where the survivors of the first commercial asteroid mining expedition have returned to Earth, and they must use resources that they've placed in lunar orbit to mount a rescue for colleagues they left behind at the asteroid. And the issue is that a new Cold War, while they've been gone, has started between the US and China in deep space, which means that the superpowers are both vying for control of those resources as well. 
And so are a few other billionaires on earth. And that is the source of the, the conflict and the tension for the story. Uh, it is the sequel to Delta V, which tells the story of the mining expedition in detail. And that first book, Delta V, introduces a character by the name of Nathan Joyce, who is a charismatic tech billionaire who has uh, who sometimes takes liberties with the truth. And so that that part is ex- complete fiction. But you can read the second book, Critical Mass, standalone. You do not need to read the first book, Delta V, but it does help to get the bigger picture. I would describe this as hard SF. Uh, and in the acknowledgments, you cite numerous experts that you consulted with in various aspects of this book. Um, could you go into a little more detail into how you researched this work? Sure. My goal in writing what is going to be a trilogy, the Delta V trilogy, my goal from the outset was I love sci-fi. I've read all sorts of hard, hard sci-fi as, as a young boy and as a man. Just I love science fiction. I was fascinated by Carl Sagan's Cosmos, again, both the book and, and the documentary series. Uh, Gerard K. O'Neill's The High Frontier absolutely had me mesmerized when I was growing up. And I started thinking about that sci-fi future we always see in popular science fiction. And it's three, four hundred years or a thousand years in the future. And I started contemplating how do we get there? How do we actually get there? without any hand-waving, can we bridge that chasm between us and that cool future? And that's really what set my course for writing this trilogy. I wanted to write that story of starting here in the present. How do we get step by step to that future? And so that's what the first book was. And of course, the the bridging material from uh, Critical Mass is the second installment in it. So in order to do that, I had to do a great deal of research. And fortunately, from my first books, Damon, my other books, I got a pretty good reputation with scientists and engineers and other people, uh, innovators, entrepreneurs, people in Silicon Valley, Wall Street, uh, defense, all sorts of places where I could go to talk to people and ask them questions about how things work, like uh, rocket science and, and what entrepreneurs are building, cool technologies. And I spent years speaking, and I I put this in the acknowledgments of both books, dozens and dozens of scientists and investors and others, uh, policymakers, to try to understand all of the technologies that we would have to master and and other things, the economics, uh, the social aspects and the social impacts, uh, climate change, so many subjects, because all of this is going to be wrapped up in our push into deep space and to establish an off-world economy. And I wanted to capture all of that. So it was a great deal of research, but I will admit it was also fascinating. Asteroid mining and lunar mining play big roles in critical mass. And I noticed that one of your acknowledgements is to John Mankins, who has done a lot of looking into the possibilities for asteroid mining. All this reminds me of the asteroid mining companies that rose and fell over the past decade. I I still have a cart in my kitchen that I picked up secondhand when Planetary Resources sold off its office furniture. Uh, Do you think that space mining could turn into a trillion-dollar industry, as Planetary Resources backers said during the early years? Or is this just a plot device for science fiction stories? Oh, I very much think it could become more than a trillion dollar industry. But then again, many industries in space will, uh, being 
unconstrained by limitations of energy and resources, and and also uh, the removal of the limit of an impact from the environment on Earth. I mean, we could vastly grow our economy in space, and in doing so, help Earth. Um, but yes, I do think it's very real. These early forays so with planetary resources and others, if you think back to the beginnings of the dot-com revolution, there was a bit of a hiccup, if you remember, around the year 2000. And a I lot do. of really multi-billion dollar companies went bankrupt. And at the time, uh, quite a few uh, pundits were saying that the internet was over. And as we know, it was not over. Its, its biggest stage was yet to come. And I think you know, these were early starts, and there have been several of them in space, but I think technology is catching up, the political and economic will is catching up, and also the urgent need, the, the, the burning fuse of climate change and increasing conflict, uh, species uh, extinction, all of these things are pressing us to try to relieve the burden of the modern world on our earth, to try to lift polluting and heavy industries into space, to avail ourselves of new energy and resources without further impacting the planet, and also to provide economic opportunity for billions of people in the developing world who have a legitimate claim to have a, a decent future for their children. So all of these things are pushing and, and providing the impetus for this push into space. And I think it's very real. Is there one piece of the technological puzzle that you think would come into place in order to enable asteroid mining to really take hold? Uh, for the Internet, for example, it was faster access, you know, the 2400 baud modems giving way to cable access. Uh, is there something similar in that? Oh, would wow, 2400 baud modems, yeah. I remember. <laughs> yes, and I would say in situ resource utilization would be the key. I know that reusable rockets have been very exciting and probably the most sci-fi moment I've lived through were when those two Falcon boosters landed simultaneously that first time. I was like, oh, it's happening. In situ resource utilization, I think, is the key because if we, we, we simply cannot lift millions of tons of resources out of Earth's gravity well without, again, further souring our atmosphere and, and polluting it, um, not to mention causing all sorts of other problems, we want to try to lift critical materials into space and then start to be able to build and refine materials in space that we can use there. That's what in situ resource utilization, and your audience probably knows that already. But I think that is the key. And that's why I brought up near-Earth asteroids as that first step. There are certain asteroids, and in the first book, Delta V, it was the asteroid Ryugu, certain near-Earth asteroids that require less energy to reach them than it would to reach the surface of our own moon. And again, there are certain key points in its orbit. And in, in the first book, it was December 13th, 2032. And that's a real trajectory that's in that book. So it's a very low delta V trajectory. The issue is having people of uh, the courage, the tenacity, and the funding to go out and do it. And also uh, in these stories, I show people and machines working together, not entirely robotic. And that came about as a result, again, of speaking to many experts who who do feel, yeah, we could get robotic missions right. NASA gets them right. But if one single thing goes wrong when it's an entirely robotic mission, the entire mission is scrubbed. And the great thing about bringing people at least closer to these machines to perhaps perform telepresence operations like they do in critical mass is that if anything goes wrong, they can go out there and fix it or change it, revise it. And that's the great thing about people is that we're infinitely adaptable. And so... 
are also going into space because if we're going to try to grow this economy and, and bring our civilization into space, it doesn't mean we have to go ourselves. We just have to be able to build the supporting and insulating structures that protect us from radiation, that enable us to have spin gravity, basically to rebuild the biosphere that we're evolved for. That's really the key. And that's really these first two books are telling that story of establishing that regolith head, as they call it, not a beachhead, but, but a toehold off of our world to begin basically all of the rest of our future. Another important plot point in this book has to do with cryptocurrency, especially space-based crypto. In the real world, enthusiasm seems to have cooled on this idea, but the characters in Critical Mass, they spend a lot of time championing blockchain and crypto as key technologies for space development. Are you as sold on crypto as the book makes it sound? Yeah, so it's interesting how these things come and go in terms of being lightning rods for a strong emotion, let's call it. Uh, but my first book, Damon, uh, envisioned a cryptocurrency, and this is before the appearance of Bitcoin. One of the things that fascinates me about blockchain is what is sometimes referred to as a triple entry ledger. And the double entry ledger was a tremendous uh, boon to commerce and, and exchange this idea of having offsetting entries. And the great thing about a triple entry ledger, which is what a blockchain is in a way, is that it's a transparent, meaning that not just both parties in the transaction, but everyone else can see it. And that's really what I think is the differing uh, aspect of blockchain. Now, people immediately tie crypto uh, you know, and a lot of questionable Ponzi schemes and other things all into that, NFTs, what have you, um, you know, DeFi, distributed finance. They tend to be bundled up, but I view it as a frontier and as a frontier of finance, that is people trying to create a new way to have a safe exchange between parties that can't and don't necessarily trust one another to get around perhaps uh, corrupt officials or what happened. They're trying various different designs. And so right now it's kind of a wild and woolly frontier. And I think we're going to see this starting to settle in in the next several years, maybe the next decade, because the utility of blockchain, I think, is manifest. It's, it's going to be used for all the people who just instantly label it as a Ponzi scheme. It is not. It is, it is a frontier. It is taking shape. And it is not for the faint-hearted. I would not invest your 401k in it, for example. But for those hardy souls that want to try to explore this new financial terrain, I do think there is a big future there. Now, in particular in space, because again, you want to be able to send bits of information here and there, and you want to be able to do, do it in that frontier of space between parties that don't necessarily trust one another. And blockchain is perfect for this. And again, who is in charge in space? This was one of the questions that I wanted to ask or present in Critical Mass. What legal system is in operation there? What economic system? It is a void in more ways than just Physically, it is a void in terms of uh, civilization. And so being able to bring in a system that can cope with all of those extremities, people not knowing or trusting each other, but being able to cryptographically secure exchange of who owns what and have it be visible to all parties out there, that could bring some order to that chaos. And one other thing I'll add to that is that the cryptocurrency or the, the uh, blockchain currency of the Cislunar Commodity Exchange in my book, Critical Mass, is based uh, not merely upon what's called proof of work or proof of stake, you know, the, the common thing here on earth, but on intrinsically valuable energy or resources. So in other words, each of these 
these um, units of money are connected to a new amount of resources or energy that has been introduced and made available to people. And so it's intrinsically valuable and thus not likely to go up in a puff of smoke when, when people panic. So that I do think there's a tremendous future with regard to this. It might be rough getting there in the meantime, but I do think there is a strong future with it. I was intrigued by your references to the world's space titans including Jack Macy, a guy who sounds a lot like Elon Musk, Sir Thomas Morton, who's the spitting, smooth-talking image of Sir Richard Branson, and George Burkett, who I'm guessing is modeled after Jeff Bezos. So what are you up to when you set up your space titans to come so close to the real thing? Oh, wow. Um, I refuse to answer on the grounds. No, I'm... I'm it, it is... These are composites. Uh, I think this is a fascinating theory you have. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, what I wanted to do there is I wanted to have some anchor points for this story to have some, well, well billionaires are sort of like these, uh, outsized, uh, uh, impactors in society right now where they can, uh, externalize their personality, whatever that is and manifest it in the world. And that's what I was trying to do. They of course compete with one another and what this is, created is, is almost a space race in a way similar to the one between the Soviet Union and the United States, except it's it's literally individuals doing it, which I guess is progress, but it certainly makes it interesting. And I wanted to capture some of that. And I wanted to introduce another billionaire into that mix, a, one who had a slightly different view, and that is the fictional Nathan Joyce. And that was in the first book. And what this was about is Taking all that I had learned in the research leading up to these books, I wanted to examine if somebody were to say, go just a little further and, and actually send people to do something quite dangerous, not without their permission, but to go talk to the types of people who climb mountains or dive deep in caves and risk their lives uh, really just for the thrill of it and, and, or, or for the experience of it or to see around the next bend. There is, a, a, I believe it's called the wanderlust gene. There's some evidence, I think it's DDR7, that the class of explorers like this, they share some common traits, which is this desire for novel experience. And what Nathan Joyce, the billionaire, does is he finds people like that who are willing to take incredible risks, but not just for a thrill, but to give the people of Earth a chance at an amazing future. Like So they put their lives on the line to extend that domain what would happen if somebody were, for example, to send a group of eight people to mine a near-Earth asteroid? And, and it's an unsanctioned mission. What could happen? Yes, they could all perish, or, or and, and that's the question I was posing. And it turns out that this type of thing is technologically possible. We could theoretically, technically do it. I thought that that was an interesting question to ask. Why don't we do it? And what if somebody did try to do it? And how would it change uh, us and our perception of our future? Because Certainly right now, there's a lot of doom and there's a drumbeat of doom going on. And what if somebody were to, to present another option uh, through bold action? And, and the other thing that I would say about that is explorers have always been with us. Um, there have always been a group of people who don't quite make sense, who, who just insist on taking ridiculous risks. And I think there might be an evolutionary basis for this in that we have societies that are settled, and occasionally among us, there's a rare few who are not satisfied and they have to go find the edge. And that is what helps us grow as a species and expand. And I think they're still among us, 
they just go base jumping and they race cars and they do, you know, these things that seem crazy to us, but I think their existence is our, is our great hope. They can help push that frontier back. And what Nathan Joyce was doing was giving them a frontier saying, I'm going to provide that new frontier and, and let's see what happens. If I were to guess what space Titan you were most in sync with, I would guess Jeff Bezos because of the focus on space stations, O'Neill habitats, and lunar development rather than on Mars. I think you had a character in the book who said, well, maybe Mars is not the answer for what we're trying to do with human settlement of space. Did I guess right? You guessed right, but here it's more that I'm I'm in tune with Gerard K. O'Neill. And Jeff Bezos, uh, he had him as a professor at Princeton. So that similarity is really there. It's Peter Glazer, solar power satellites, Gerard K. O'Neill. This is the idea of settling deep space by recreating our biosphere in free space, as opposed to settling another planet. And you mentioned that you you hadn't had a chance to read Delta V. If and when you read Delta V, you will see there was a whole chapter dedicated to that discussion that I've had a lot of conversations about with people, but it, it, leaves no question of which one I think is more more likely and more desirable. And again, it's entirely based on research. And, and part of that came from uh, Pete Warden, who was the head of NASA Ames at the time. He was the first one to clue me into the existence of perchlorates, for example, on the surface of Mars and what that means to human cognition and reproduction and everything else. And that's just one of the elements. And so there's the other thing that I would say about Mars colonization is, you know, we have a again, a burning fuse in the the form of climate change that we are facing. And I do not think we have 10 years and perhaps half a trillion dollars to spend focusing on Mars colonization and getting a few dozen people there. And I don't think there's a strong economic case for Mars. Neither do I think it protects us as a multi-planetary species very much, because for at least a century or more, any Mars colony would be wholly reliant upon Earth. And I think if we build out cislunar industry, that is the the space in and around the earth and the moon, and start bringing millions of people up there to work and to start providing energy and resources to earth, clean energy and resources to earth, building the economy for everybody. By that point, if we want to go to Mars, we'll be able to go in a very big way and much more safely. But yeah, I don't think a rush to colonize Mars uh, makes much sense at this point, as exciting as it seems. and, And again, continue to do science on Mars, robotic missions, and so on, absolutely, and explore the solar system. But I think we could do that so much better and bigger with an entire cislunar industry and many, many thousands of people working in space. Yeah, you're touching on a couple of themes that Jeff Bezos has stressed in a lot of the talks that he's given, uh, the idea of having millions of people living and working in space and and how space settlement is not a plan B. Uh, when If we go into space, it's to save yes. the Earth, uh, have it zoned for light industrial and residential use rather than heavy industry, moving heavy industry and manufacturing in, into space to save the Earth. Uh, But it looks as if Elon Musk has had a lot more success with his model. I I don't know whether you're willing to handicap the real-life space race, but do you think that there's going to be a winner, or is it really not a race? I think people have said this, too, that it's not really a a race that one billionaire is going to win, that there's a lot of opportunity out there. 
I think there's a lot of opportunity out there, and I don't think any single one of them is right. For example, uh, if Starship works as advertising, it will be a tremendously useful workhorse in lifting 100 tons at a time into cislunar space. Um, for example, we are going to need specialized equipment, even if we're doing in situ resource utilization, we won't be able to create people in space initially. I mean, you know, until we actually have settlements where we're people are, are having children and living full time for, for a while, it's going to be a, a rough and woolly frontier. So people and specialized equipment will need to be brought into space and Starship would be tremendously useful in that regard. Um, you know, having multiple different groups uh, and, and governments, you know, competing to bring things into space, uh, vying against one another that can cause competition. And, and that is something that I think that we'll be working out and that I examine in critical mass. How do we develop a legal framework? And this is not the first time we've done this. We did it with the, the seas, the oceans, and the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, Antarctica, you know, a lot of different things were worked out when it didn't seem like it would be possible. And, and I think what really helps there is when there's a tremendous opportunity for everyone, and space is certainly that. I think one of the estimates in, in The High Frontier, and again, this is a book written in 1976 by Gerard K. O'Neill, that posited the idea of creating off-world colonies and putting a mass driver on the moon, that type of thing, was that even with a torrid pace of growth, I mean, really rapid economic growth, there's enough in energy and resources in our solar system to last us for up to 12,000 years. And of course, you know, people immediately you know, bristle and they say, well, we don't want to despoil the entire solar system. And, and I do not look at life expanding into space as, as being despoiling. And I think uh, spreading this biosphere and, and expanding life into the cosmos is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I think we can do it well. You know, it already is an irradiated uh, void. And, and if we can bring life into it, and again, we don't want to uh, ruin it. But when I say 12,000 years, that's just availing ourselves of the easily available resources. And again, I think it's about a trillionth of the energy of the sun impacts the earth at any one point. So there's a great deal of energy in this solar system that is just radiating out in every direction. And if we can avail ourselves of it, we could help so many people here on Earth. This book also has aspects of climate fiction woven in. It's set in the 2030s and conditions on Earth are worsening. Your astronauts are really doing a lot, but they're very much concerned with uh, decarbonizing the Earth's atmosphere. Now, some people argue that spending all this money on space ventures is a waste of money and will hurt efforts to decarbonize here on Earth, but I have a feeling you'd argue the opposite. So could you tell us more about the relationship between fixing our climate and exploring space? Sure. I, I wouldn't say I, I argue the opposite. And this is where I think I surprise people. We need to do all of that. In other words, the, the solar panels, the wind turbines, tidal energy, even some nuclear, we need to to clean up and decarbonize uh, our energy creation and in, in industry because, of course, since about 1850, we've, we've pumped a trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, in, in addition to other things. And we need to do something about that. And it's going to be a near thing. Uh, I, was, I was trying to remember, I think it's the uh, Potsdam Institute for Climate. What is it? Yeah, Pots, 
Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact did a study of the IPCC, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They came up with 1,200 different scenarios that we could follow as a civilization in dealing with climate change, how likely it is for us to succeed and and what the impact would be uh, on the climate. And all of this was to try to keep it within 1.5 degrees of Celsius uh, uh, temperature rise, I think between like now and 2050. And a thousand of these scenarios were just ruled out as impossible, politically, economically, and otherwise. And when they started whittling it down, they only got to about 20 or 30 different scenarios where we have a shot at trying to keep our warming, you know, based on current models, within that 1.5 degree uh, Celsius rise. And even then, some of these had a temporary period. And when I say temporary, like a decade where we are above it, but then come back down. So the idea, I think, that, that we're going to be able to tackle this purely here on Earth is very unlikely. I would love for us to be able to deal with it here on Earth. But you know, the unfolding chaos that may happen, let's say as climate changes and, and crops that were traditionally grown in one area can no longer be grown there. Competing access to dwindling resources has a tendency to cause increased conflict. And increased conflict means less cooperation across borders. And this is why I think space can really help us. Because if we start to avail ourselves of energy from space and resources from space, and by that I mean cislunar space, near-Earth asteroids, the moon, we can start building some of these uh, solar power satellites, very large ones, two gigawatt ones that John Mankins and Peter Glazer and others have envisioned and, and even designed, and beam that back to Earth to provide clean energy wherever it's needed. If you put a, a solar power satellite in a geosynchronous orbit, you can beam through microwaves that energy just about anywhere in the, in the hemisphere below it. And that can be helpful as chaos starts to unfold. If you can provide steady energy to people when they need it, uh, because you can use energy then to, as I've described in critical mass, even to create food, desalinate uh, seawater, uh, to bring life to people and to provide uh, energy for living and industry and other things like that. So being able to bring that to bear and to expand upon that, even as things might be getting more chaotic on Earth, you know, in space, we might be able to sustain that and continue to build that infrastructure. That's one of the things that I think makes space so, so important. Uh, I, again, I do think it's, it's very important that we do the solar panels and the wind turbines and all that stuff that we can on Earth. But I think we're going to need quite a bit more to try to achieve this in time. When I looked into the technologies that are woven into the book's plot, I was surprised to see how many of them have a foundation in fact. We've already talked about asteroid mining and blockchain and space solar power, but I thought it'd be useful to get your quick comments on a few more of those technologies uh, so you can consider this a lightning round. Here goes. Okay. Here goes. Uh, genetic, so, uh, yeah. Genetic surgery as a cure for cancer. Real or fiction? Yes. So uh, I could provide you several links for that, and they wouldn't be going to weird websites. They'd be going to uh, Harvard Medical School. There's um, one of the most promising cancer therapies is CRISPR, genetic editing, where they'll take a, an adenovirus and they will, will program it basically by, by providing this. I, I won't go into how CRISPR works, but basically it searches through DNA looking for a particular key. It's a sort of an evolved uh, bacterial immune system. And in this case, we're using it to try to identify tumors. So they, for example, get the DNA of the tumor 
that you want to get rid of, and then you program the CRISPR to eradicate it or cut it out. And that's a gross simplification, but there are many different versions of CRISPR and genetic editing that are being used and experimented with to provide therapies, very effective therapies for cancer. And you know, obviously we're here in a podcast, I could send you a link, but very recently there was a, a, a young girl, I believe in the UK, whose untreatable cancer was halted. And now she apparently is in complete remission due to one of these genetic therapies. Uh, highly experimental, but tremendously successful. So in that case, I wanted to invade that, that technology for use in helping to repair damage from radiation in space. Um, it's, it's more of a management than it is a cure, though. And that was brought up to me by Jim Logan, who was one of the, the consulting uh, medical people on, on my books, where he was indicating that, sure, it's unlikely that we would completely cure all cancers, but being able to manage them in the same way that we manage some diseases that used to be the scourge of, of mankind, uh, all of humanity, you know, if we can figure out how they work and manage them, then they become survivable and then we can move past them. So, yes, real. And I want to let listeners know that we'll be linking to more resources about all these things from the item that accompanies this podcast. So uh, we'll do the searching for you. Oh, How cool. about uh, 3D printing for metal structures in space, real or science fiction? Yeah, so chemical vapor deposition. This is a real thing. And and so was the, uh, the MOND process that was used in Delta V and is used to some degree here. This was trippy for some people. But an exciting part of the research for me, uh, these technologies have been around, some of them, the MON process, which is where you, you basically turn metal into a gas. And it sounds really weird, but it has to do with chemistry and pressure and temperature. You can transform metals into what's called a carbonyl, like a, an iron carbonyl or a nickel carbonyl, which is a different form of metal that can then be used to do what's called deposing that metal as a film in a certain atmosphere. So in other words, you would turn it into a carbonyl and then to do chemical vapor deposition, you would introduce it into a chamber where there is a prepared surface. And because of the temperature of the surface and the exact nature of the environment it's in, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, carbon monoxide, it starts to depose as a film in a form and that is very real. That is used, as a matter of fact, very often to create silicon wafer chips and a lot of electronics, perfect mirrors, things like that, where you want the surface to be very uniform, very pure. You can use chemical vapor deposition. And in space, vacuums are easy to easily come by. So uh, not so easy here on Earth. You have to create a special clean room. But in deep space, you can make a very clean room. And plus microgravity will help because uh, a lot of these structures are crystalline and gravity can cause distortions that can make it an imperfect crystalline growth. Well, in deep space, you can have microgravity and that will make for really, really good services. So the chemical vapor deposition that is used to create uh, big met metallic structures, that is a real technology. Now, it's not real in the sense that we don't have the equipment up in space to do it right now, but the equipment does exist and, and getting it up there, I think, would be a big game changer. So you can also say it's 3D printing. It's a little different than 3D printing as we know it, where you're creating these layers manually with a, with a printing nozzle. This would be much more where you're creating an environment on a surface where it's, it's accreting almost like snowfall, but at an atomic level. 
Mm-hmm. Lunar cyclers. Real yeah, lunar cyclers. So this is the idea that you would have a spacecraft that is set on a trajectory where it is constantly going between the Earth and the Moon at a certain interval. And this is very real. Uh, we, we can absolutely do that. I don't believe there are any lunar cyclers in existence. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember if there ever were. But the, the idea of the one in the ones in both delta V and critical mass is that they go at intervals where they go up past the moon and the gravitational tug of the moon moving past alters the trajectory slightly, but in a very predictable way so that by the time it swings back down to earth, it again encounters the moon, even though it has moved. And so it, it, it creates a sort of a rosette pattern if you were to look at an entire year of it. And that's why the first uh, cycler craft in my book is called the rosette, but very real. One of the things about it is even though it might swing past low Earth orbit at the uh, the periapse in its orbit, you would still have to, to get enough energy to put yourself on a trajectory go, to go to the moon to, to dock with this thing, because you would have to get its exact trajectory, even though you're right close to Earth. You basically have to expend all the energy as if you were going to go to the moon to get up to speed, get up to the, the trajectory, and then you could board this cycler the intention being that this cycler could be bigger than what you just launched out of Earth from. So you could have a much bigger cycler because it stays in space and it just keeps going back and forth between the Earth and the moon. So it would be useful uh, as a sort of a mini hotel to go back and forth. And the same has been proposed to do the same with Mars and the other planets. Mm-hmm. Mass drivers, real or fiction? Yeah, see, this is, I tell you, this is the one that always excited me. And again, I go back to uh, the high frontier. Drive K O'Neill. Mass drivers, uh, they do exist. They're really electric motors, right? An electric motor is really a, a rolled up mass driver in some ways. And of course, there's different ways to design them. But this is where you're creating uh, alternating uh, current, electric current, to propel an object similar to a rail gun down a, a long pipe. And in this case, accelerate it so rapidly that you can fire it off of the moon and into deep space because the escape velocity of the moon is, uh, and I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head, it's like 2.53 kilometers per second. Maybe it's a little less, but that was the trajectory used by the the mass driver in critical mass because by firing a, a brick of regolith at that speed and at a certain direction, at a certain location on the equator of the moon, you would bring it up to L2, which is the Lagrange point, uh, where it could then be grasped by people up there and and utilized. So by firing through this uh, mass driver, every two seconds, a 10 kilogram brick, you really start to amass a great deal of of material to work with up in deep space without having to launch it up from a rocket. Now, this technology very much exists and you can see video of uh, early prototypes of it with, again, Gerard K. O'Neill and his, uh, his uh, students and, and, let's say, eager uh, enthusiasts building it in places like Stanford and elsewhere. These were not full-size uh, mass drivers, and they were also within the atmosphere of Earth, so they could only speed things up so much. I mean, here on Earth, uh, going at that speed, things would burn up. But it's a real technology. We have not built them in, in the vacuum of space, but we know how to do so. And I think it's, it's urgent that we try to do so. The one thing I was surprised you didn't mention was helium-3 
for decades, I've heard talk about how helium-3 could be mined on the moon to provide fuel for fusion reactors on Earth. Is there a reason why you didn't go with the helium-3 angle? It's actually mentioned in critical mass. It's ah. not mentioned much. It's mentioned in one spot. And the reason I only mention it in one spot is because fusion, although it occurs in, in the sun, you know, we have not made it workable. Um, the uh, tokamak and other other fusion reactors, they, they require more energy currently than they create. And of course, the National Ignition Facility, uh, which recently was in the news for creating more energy uh, than it than it cost to cause the fusion reaction for, you know, I think a thousandth of a second. Um, even then, once you factor in all of the other, uh, the electricity and all of the, the systems around in the building, it's not yet workable. And I think we are still quite a ways away from fusion. So I did not make that a real focus of this book because I don't think it's going to be viable or scalable by that time, uh, the late 2030s. I don't, I don't think it is. I would love to be surprised if that was the case, but I don't think it is. They do, however, set aside the helium-3, thinking that it will be of value at some point. So they, they, don't, they don't toss it into a slag heap. Uh, they, they still keep track of it. Can you give us a little hint at what's going to unfold in the next book in this series? Well, I don't want to give away too much, but I, I will go back to what caused me to want to write this series to begin with, which is that I wanted to tell a story of starting in the present going into the future and, and reaching that cool sci-fi future we all imagine. And so I'm two steps in it. And at this point, uh, you know, the, the third book would start to deliver upon some of those things. I will say that that much. I think what happens is by the time of, of critical mass in the second book, so many possibilities have come up that it's not one possibility. And this is partly what will pull more and more people from earth to start to explore and invest in space and live in space, if not full-time to have their careers in space, is because of the rapidly expanding possibilities. So again, not one story, but a profusion of stories. But yes, the, the third book will be focused on one of those, but you could pick any of two dozen. And we're curious to know if you've read any good books lately or seen any good movies lately. And also, um, do you have any recommendations for uh, good works of art or other media that do a good job of previewing how the Artemis program and other lunar development might unfold? I, I will give NASA props and also SpaceX props for, for outreach in, in, to the public. I think they do a great job. I, I find myself watching their streams at like two or three in the morning, depending on when something's. Uh, I remember when the James Webb uh, launch occurred, for example. I got up early for that. I think it was Christmas morning. Best Christmas gift ever, man. And, and of course, a nail-biting thing because there's so many single points of failure in that. Uh, and then, of course, in subsequent days, as each component unfolded, that would be an example, I think, of, of some really good content that I think interested the, the mainstream public. And of course, what it's producing is amazing. Uh, as far as books that I'm reading, I, there was a book I read recently, a little slim volume, Foster by Claire Keegan. Really, really moving, beautiful book. In terms of, of other authors that I, I read and enjoy, Kim Stanley Robinson, I thought Ministry of the Future was great. And again, if, if I have any difference with Kim, like for example, I hope he's right about a lot of that stuff. I tend to think it won't be enough. I tend to think that the central banks of, of the world will not ultimately come to the conclusion that they should do the right thing. So hope he's right. 
We'll see. Uh, Neil Stevenson, uh, who else are we talking about? Oh, George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Rendezvous with Rama. I just reread that recently. I think they're going to make a TV show to that. That that could be cool. Um, John Dos Passos. I have wide ranging interests in terms of, of uh, reading. I guess the final question would be, how close do you think the real world of 2042 will come to the world as portrayed in critical mass? Well, it is my goal to try to shift the Overton window a bit to make that more possible. And, and that's part of what I'm trying to do with these books. I wanted to make them entertaining. I wanted to make them involving and thrilling. But part of the reason I want to do that is I want more people who aren't interested in space to become interested in space and to recognize that it has a direct impact on their lives and it can help them. So in order to safeguard Earth, uh, we must, some of us, go to space. That's really what I'm trying to get across, that it's not a wasted effort. It's not a, it's not a hobby or a billionaire's uh, uh, you know, fun vacation. It can be so much more. And that's what I'm trying to do with this, is really create a, that sense of urgency, but also possibility. And, you know, those two things. So that would be my goal for it. And we'll see if I succeed. Well, I think we'll get back to you in 2040 or so and see how it's going. Thank that you so much. That is the much. risk of writing near future fiction, isn't it? I'll be around <laughs> when and if this does happen. And if it doesn't happen, well, let's, let's not even talk about that. Hopefully it does. And if that, and then we'll have this conversation up at L5 or something like that. Okay. Well, whatever they have to replace... Uh, Microsoft Exchange or the Google scheduling, whatever it That's is, right. we'll put that on the list for 24. Quantum entangled connection, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Always fun. Thanks to Daniel Suarez and Hannah Poole at Penguin Random House for setting up the interview. For more about Daniel and Critical Mass, including links to online information about the real-world science behind the fiction, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. And while you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies. <laughs> <laughs>